Welcome to Odds Bodkin's Curiosity Shop, where you'll find the unique, the bizarre, and sometimes the haunted. Feel free to look around, peruse the items, and never fear. There's nothing here that bites. Hard, anyway. <laughs> well, hello there. So delighted to see you return to Odds Bodkin's Curiosity Shop. I am your shopkeeper, Chris Baker, and today we've got an interesting item. If you'll come over here, we were here not too long ago. This is a display we have in the shop where we have for your viewing pleasure a display of various helmets used by military types throughout history. Uh, we have some dating back to ancient times. And over here at this end, some more modern helmets, but not too modern. If you'll take a look at this helmet right here, this is a helmet that may have been used by one of the GIs during World War II. Now, I see the look on your face, and you may be thinking to yourself that you would like to try this old GI helmet on, but I warn you that that would not be a good idea for anyone who places this helm upon their head may see the visions and awaken the ghosts of the past. And therein lies the essence of today's episode of Odds Bodkin's Curiosity Shop. So let's pull out the kinetoscope and take a look at the new Shutter Original, Brooklyn 45. So Brooklyn 45 is a movie that came out here uh, late last week on Shudder, a film by Ted Gagan, and uh, it was a, a movie that I wasn't sure if I was going to check out at first. I, I just wasn't sure about the the premise of it, if I cared. I've kind of been in a funk lately, uh, so it's been not hard to to want to watch movies, but uh, I, I don't know, but I'm, but I'm snapping out of it. Uh, I had to kick myself in the ass, and I'm like, you know what? I am going to watch this movie, and you know, I may talk about it on the podcast. So I believe it was Monday night. I sat down, and I'm going to check out this movie. So I watched it, and I definitely say that I was pleasantly surprised by this movie. It didn't blow me out of the water, but I thought it was a really solid movie and it had a lot of things. Well, the, the movie in its entirety, I didn't love it as much as I wanted to. The individual parts are, I, I feel, greater than the sum of those parts, uh, if that makes any sense. There are a lot of things to really like about this movie, even if the the movie in its, its entirety didn't really hit me as much as uh, I wanted it to or hit me in the places that I wanted it to. And we'll explain that. Like I said, not to say it was a bad movie because I did enjoy this movie, but uh, but we'll get into the nuts and bolts of that. But here's a, a quick rundown of the movie before we get into the spoilery section. It's a group of of military veterans, military people who are at the end of World War II. I can't remember how long it's been since the end. It's been under a year, I believe, since the end of World War II. And these vets, these uh, army men and women, are meeting for cocktails. And then, of course, cocktails turn into, let's have a seance to commune with the dead wife of one of our main characters. And then this seance turns into a situation where 
the ghosts of uh, their past are are coming back to haunt them, uh, figuratively and in some cases most literally. But this is a movie that has a lot going on for it as far as themes. It, it, it talks a lot about political issues, religious issues, uh, social issues, but never really feels like it's beating you over the head with any sort of moralistic, hey, this is what you should believe. It just throws all this out there and kind of lets you chew on it yourself. And I liked that about this. One of the things I enjoyed about this is that it it dealt with a lot of issues, but never really gave you the answer as to what you should feel about this for any reason or, or another. But it just laid it out there, presented it to you, and allowed you to to make up your own mind, which which I appreciate that in a film, whether it is a, a screenplay or a, a filmmaker that's putting something out. Uh, another thing I really liked about this, and it made this very interesting, that this was like one of those old school chamber plays, or I've heard Ted Gagan describe this as a chamber drama. Of course, a chamber play is a play where you, there are no sets or, or costumes. It's a small space. Uh, you get a small number of actors, and they're just out there performing. Uh, a three-act play all in the confines of one space, and like I said, one small cast with no real changes in, in set or costume. And, and that's kind of what you have here. The bulk of this movie takes place in one room, which made for some very interesting aspects to this movie from a visual standpoint while you're watching this and from a technical standpoint in the making of this this movie. This all takes place in this main room. The only other shots we get are outside the house, the hallway leading into the room and and that's it and you you spend very little time outside you spare very little time in that hallway uh, the bulk of this movie 95 percent of it all takes place in this one parlor and so from a technical standpoint as a filmmaker uh, the fact that Ted Gagan and the the art department and I, I know he's given a lot of credit to the art department as to creating this parlor and and they did it from the ground up this one wasn't a an already made house that they just filmed in. They built this parlor and they filled it with all the, the different odds and ends and pictures and little tchotchkes and, and items all over the, the walls and, and on the shelves and the mantles. and it, I mean, the room looked really lived in and the room looked very stunning visually. There was a lot to catch. You know, it's one of those movies where you could watch it numerous times and notice different things each time inside this room. So I think that was a really smart aspect of of filming it like this. You're filming in one room and you have to make this uh, this room visually interesting or else it starts to feel boring, it starts to feel claustrophobic, and it starts to feel uninteresting. No matter how well the actors are, are doing, you have a space that just no longer draws your attention anywhere. And and they did a really good job with taking this small space and creating a space where there's always something that's catching your eye uh, beyond just what is going on with the actors interacting with each other. And and the room was was created in such a way that each section of the room felt like a different place. 
There's the section of the room where they're going to get their their drinks, and there's a little chair there, and then it, it's kind of its own thing. Then there's the table in in front of this kind of mantle that has all these things on it, and that's kind of its own space. Uh, there is the doorway leading to and from this room that almost feels like its own space. There's the window uh, off to the the far side of the room that feels like its own space, and then the the radio area which kind of comes into play so there's lots of spaces within this room and even the the closet that we get introduced to a lot of space within this small space that made you feel like okay I'm not going to a different room but each section of the room felt like its own self-contained world that like I said things didn't feel boring Things didn't feel claustrophobic. Things didn't feel like, oh, okay, we've been in here for an hour and the the scene hasn't changed. Uh, So I thought that was a really interesting aspect of this movie as well. So before I get any further into this, uh, I do want to warn you, we are going to have some spoilers. If you haven't caught Brooklyn 45, catch it. It's on Shudder right now. And then come back and hear what I think about this movie. Uh, if you have watched it or if you you don't even know if you're going to, but you don't mind hearing me uh, spoil things for you, we are going to have spoilers from here on out. So I guess we're going to do this kind of how we, we usually do. I'm going to talk about the characters and the actors first off, introduce you to the different players in this and and how we're introduced to them. Of course, right off the bat, you're introduced to Marla and Bob Sheridan. Uh, Marla is a former interrogator in the military, uh, played by Anne Ramsey. And uh, if you're not familiar with Anne Ramsey by name, she's she's done a ton of stuff. Uh, League of Their Own. She was in, uh, my wife remembered her from Mad About You. She was in 2001's Planet of the Apes. Probably most notably for me, she played Sarah Logan in The Taking of Deborah Logan, which had some of the creepiest, scariest scenes uh, in film. Love that movie. But uh, she's in this. She plays Marla Sheridan. And like I said, former military interrogator. And her husband, Bob, who he's a military guy, sort of. He works kind of a, a desk clerk job in the Pentagon. So not necessarily military military but he works with the military that's how he and marla met he's kind of a you know he's a paper pusher and he he hears about it from marla's friends marla's friends are all war heroes and she gets grief uh, bob gets grief about him just being a like a paper pusher in in the pentagon and kind of disrespected a lot and of course marla always comes to his aid she she plays a good character there's not a lot of complexity to the Marla character. Uh, She is there kind of as the moral compass for this group. And, you know, it's one of those things where she's very close with all the guys. It's one of those deals where probably all the guys had a crush on her, kind of like the Beverly character in Stephen King's It. All the guys at one point or another probably had a crush on her, but Bob is the one that ended up with her. Bob is the one that wasn't the the war hero type, and there's probably a little bit of jealousy going on there. But the Bob character is uh, a character that uh, we'll talk about it when we get to the climax, because I ain't going to talk about the ending of this movie, but uh, there's more than meets the eye with the Bob character. He's a little more complex than he comes across as just kind of like the... You know, the milk toast bland office guy. But Bob is played by Ron Raines, who is a 
if I'm not mistaken, he's like a local Chicago actor that uh, Ted Gagan wanted to wanted to work with, and he plays. Uh, he does uh, a lot of things for The Onion. He does the character, their curmudgeon-y film critic character. So, uh, and he 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 was a good actor. I, I really enjoyed what he did with the Bob character, as well as a uh, Anne Ramsey as Marla. I thought she does a really good job with this character. She's very likable, and you understand why all these guys uh, gravitate towards her, and and probably have all had a crush on her at some point or another. We're also introduced right away to Archibald Stanton. He's a major in the army, uh, played by Jeremy Holm, who I believe. He's done one of the, uh, another Ted Gagan movie. I can't remember if it's Ranger or or something like that. But uh, he does a really good job. He's one of these actors, uh, and there's several in this that you're like, I, I've seen him before. I know him, and it's kind of nice to see some of these actors. We'll talk about the other ones coming up, getting a chance to really uh, get a bigger role because there's a lot of guys that have done small roles where they don't get a lot of screen time. They do a great job with what little screen time they have. But uh, but to see these uh, actors, veteran actors, uh, get a, a movie where they can have a role that they can really sink their teeth into and we can really see their acting chops, uh, it was fun for that. And Archibald Stanton, uh, this character played by uh, Jeremy Holm, is one of those actors who who got a really interesting character of course the Archibald Stanton character is is a very complex character in this uh he's he's a homosexual character and this is a time where that is not uh, not a very socially acceptable thing and he gets a lot of shit from Major DeFranco uh and and there's a lot of tension there between them he's also on trial for war crimes and it's kind of one of those complicated issues where on the commands of another character we're going to talk about, Hawk, on his commands, threw a grenade belt into a room full of children. And of course, they tried to cover it up, but things came out and now he's on trial for these war crimes. And all these these guys above him, uh, Major DeFranco, Colonel Hockstatter, uh, are all saying that they're going to protect him, but but you almost wonder if maybe they're it's all lip service. And the Major Stanton character is very interesting because he's not a bad guy. At, at first, he seems a little pompous and arrogant. One of those guys, a good-looking guy, and you know thinks the the whole world is going to be charmed by him. But he also is remorseful for what he did, and it's a situation where he's a soldier who was only following orders and the morality behind that or, or lack thereof. Uh, it, it raises a lot of questions. It doesn't tell you what to think, but it, it makes you think about this character and and. You know, the military and war crimes in general and people that are sentenced for things that they were just following orders. Uh, On the same token, that a lot can be said about the Nazis. Uh, We're just following orders. And and can you blame them or or not? It really creates an interesting topic to discuss. I think this is one of these movies that is a great conversation starter. And I, I like movies that, like, don't tell you what to think, but set out a scenario and let you talk amongst yourselves sort of situation. So the the Archibald Stanton character, very complex, very interesting, very well played by uh, Jeremy Holm. Uh, There's also Larry Fessenden, who plays 
Colonel Clive Hockstadter. And he is probably one of the standouts for me in this movie. Uh, he apparently is a, a very close friend of the director, writer-director uh, Ted Gagan. Uh, they apparently live close by. He's done other Ted Gagan movies. But Larry Fessenden, fantastic job with this role. And he's one of those actors that has just been in about everything. He was in Session 9, Cabin Fever 2, uh, one of my favorite vampire movies, Stakeland. He was in uh, Ted Gagan's uh, We're Still Here uh, just a, a fantastic filmography and a fantastic actor. And he's he's one of those actors that you see him doing a lot of bit parts. Uh, so it was nice to really see him get to stretch his legs and stretch his acting chops and really put on a show. And like I said, probably one of the, the standouts for me. But his character, Clive Hockstetter, uh, again, another very complicated character. He's the uh, military commander that, that told... Archie to to throw the the belt of grenades into the the thing with the kids, uh, but he's also a haunted man. His wife had recently committed suicide because no one would believe her because she's accusing her next door neighbor of being a Nazi, and and that's really kind of the 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 MacGuffin that that spearheads this whole thing. He's trying to contact his wife who has just killed herself. Uh, I believe six weeks prior. Uh, it's very close in proximity as to how far along it's been since she killed herself. But he he wants to con contact her with a, a seance, and things get a little more complicated as that seance progresses. But uh, another one of the big characters is Major Paul DeFranco, played by. Ezra Buzzington, another actor who's just been in a ton of things. He was in Fight Club, The Prestige, Tay Gagan's movie Mohawk. He's going to be in that upcoming film uh, Dark Harvest. But again, another actor who just, you know, he gets a lot of like these small bit roles, but it was interesting to see him in, in something bigger and meatier. And this character, Major Paul DeFranco, was definitely a character that he could uh, stretch his legs with as far as acting goes, because this character is very much probably the only character that really felt kind of like a caricature you know he was the hard-assed ultra patriotic alpha male military guy and and it bordered on parody but uh, but i think he did a really good job finding that balance between being a caricature being a parody of this this type of character and and being real with this character. And this character also acts as a bit of an antagonist in this movie. Because uh, once they get trapped in this room, he is probably the one... I mean, he's essentially the one that's right. But just being right doesn't make what you have to do to get out of this room right. And uh, he, he does a really fantastic job with the with the assholeness of this character, which I which I quite enjoyed uh, his performance in that. And then, of course, there's Christina Klebe. She plays uh, Hilde, Hildegard Ballman. She is the neighbor of the Hochstatters that uh, Clive's wife thought was a German spy. And I liked her character because you were never quite certain. Uh, she swore up and down, and even when... The Marla character interrogates her and is stabbing the tip of her finger with a with a pin to to make her talk. She 
insist that she wasn't a spy, but then she would say little things and, and her delivery was such that always left you wondering, was it all an act? Was she actually a German, uh, a Nazi spy? And I liked how her performance kind of left you guessing, left you wondering what you're seeing. Is what you're seeing actually what is going on? You know, the, as, as far as narration goes, no one felt like a reliable narrator through the, throughout this whole thing. Hawk's crazy with grief. Major DeFranco's crazy with power. Stanton's just trying to do the right thing, but he's never sure what the right thing is, following orders or following what his heart and his head say. Marla always seems to want to do the right thing. Same with Bob. Bob wants to do the right thing until he changes his mind on what the right thing even is. And this Hildy character is is a character that, that you can't really trust because uh, you don't know if you can trust her because there has been that seed of doubt planted in your mind that that she is a, a Nazi spy. And as much as she protests, and I, I think that probably plays into the some of the some of the subject matter and, and some of the themes of this about uh, essentially a, a, a main theme of this and a very simple theme at that is that you can't judge a book by its cover. Uh, just because somebody is German in 1945 in Brooklyn doesn't mean they're a Nazi spy. But there again. Just because she says she's not a Nazi spy and she seems simple and and unassuming doesn't mean she might not be a Nazi spy. Really, this movie is a bit of a mindfuck when it comes to uh, the themes and what it's trying to say because, and I don't think it is that, and I've heard some people saying it doesn't know what it wants to say. I don't think it's that. I think it's, it's trying to say, here's the world. It's complicated and you got to make up your own mind and be careful because if you're wrong, bad shit happens. At least that's my take on it. But this movie goes on and you get a lot of exposition and it was done interesting enough through conversation where you kind of get an idea of who everybody is, where everybody's at in their own life and and their place in the story. Uh, I thought it was really interesting. It could have come across as boring, but, but it wasn't. Like I said, you're in this room with all these interesting things and the conversation is interesting enough that it didn't come across as slow or, as I said, uh, didn't come across as boring, I don't think. Then you get into that seance and that's where things start to get really creepy. And... Uh, you know, the, the closet door starts banging and you think it's the spirits. It turns out it's just Hildy. But part of me wondered, well, I'll get to what I, I wondered a, a little bit later. But I think the seance is where this really starts to become a horror movie. and Or at least elements of horror. And that had some really creepy stuff. The thing with the necklace was creepy. The hand coming out of the mirror was very creepy. Uh, it, and I like the effect on that. It almost had like a like a Ghostbusters, you know, the uh, the woman in the library at the very beginning of Ghostbusters. It almost had that film quality of special effect. I, I dug that. That was kind of cool. When they're speaking to Hawk's dead wife, uh, had an eerie quality to it. And then shit got real. And shit got uh, this, you know, as creepy as this was, it also had some gore to it as well. Because Hawk blowing his brains out, the practical effects on that were were just creepy as fuck. And then, of course, later on in the movie, when Hawk uh, comes back to life <laughs> and starts smashing his own head against the table and, and his 
face is just all mangled and and the practical effects there were were brilliant i, I love movies that that use practical effects when when they're going to be so much more effective in a horror standpoint than than it would be in going all completely digital even if digital is and cg is a cheaper option uh that practical it just you can't you can't outdo that that you know that that you can't create that in a, a computer program but it was really kind of interesting uh this whole movie they get locked in this room supernaturally because uh they they break the circle before they close it and the the spirits have have been unleashed and hildy busts out of the closet door you find out it wasn't the ghosts uh it wasn't the spirits that were making that closet door shake it was hildegard I, I don't know. Part of me wanted to think that maybe she was a ghost uh, because the whole thing is that Clive's wife, Hawk's wife, thought she was a German spy. Nobody believed her, not even Hawk. She killed herself. Then he started to believe her that you know, she must have, she was right. And, and, you know, it's remorse for not believing his wife, you know, once she's gone. Well, okay, if I believe her now, that'll make things better. And it didn't. But he kidnaps her, and I thought it would have been interesting if, and played into the ghosts of the past coming back to to haunt them, if that was actually a ghost. Because she didn't show up until after Hawk killed himself. So nobody would know that she was already dead. And I thought it would have been interesting if they've been interacting with her this whole time, and then at some point something happens maybe she disappears at the at the end and then they look in the closet and find her dead body there she's been dead all along and this was the ghost that they were they were dealing with that's not how it went i thought that might have been a little more interesting and like i said from a horror standpoint it would have played a little more into the horror but the ending as it was was pretty horrific to a degree but throughout this this whole thing, that's that's generally the play on this. It's delving into the war crimes that were committed by by Archibald Stanton and Hawk and DeFranco's uh, involvement in those war crimes. It was about Major DeFranco, his hatred for Germans and and anybody that wasn't a red blooded uh, American, and this notion that they had to kill Hildy to leave this room and and i found it interesting because you know a lot of a lot of times in ghost movies the spirits the spirits that speak to us they know the truth they know the real they know the real scoop of, of things and they're usually the ones trying to guide people to do the right thing that's that's kind of a modern take on ghosts these days but in this situation yeah it was the ghost of hawk's wife convincing trying to convince them that they had to kill this woman to escape the room hawk when he kind of comes back from the dead he is convincing them that they have to kill her to leave this room and it was it was very dark and and usually the ghosts are trying to help us you know uh that's a very modern take on on ghosts but they didn't do that they you know these ghosts were malevolent which i thought was was interesting and and the struggle between defranco and stanton on whether to kill this woman you know stanton's already killed and and the fact that she was very the hildy character was very sympathetic towards archibald uh you know saying that she didn't blame him for what he did to those german children because he was he was just following orders he's not a bad man he just made a bad decision based on 
you know, other bad men telling him what to do. And that there again, it's interesting conversations it starts, but, uh, but he's trying to do the right thing and keep DeFranco from killing her. And that whole struggle was very interesting. But then when the whole climax happens where somehow Bob gets the gun that is in play throughout this, this whole movie and he shoots DeFranco to keep him from killing Hildy, but then when Hildy goes to thank Bob, he ends up shooting her. And then the door's unlocked, and Marla, Bob, and Archibald all leave. It was very dark. It had a very Tales from the Crypt vibe to it as far as the ending goes. A very dark and, and almost uh, nihilistic ending. I don't know if it was supposed to leave you with any hope. Everybody's damaged by the end of this. Three people are dead. One person's still facing war crimes. Marla doesn't look at Bob the same again. Bob's just thinking, well, I, I, I had to get us out of there. And it just, it, it was a very interesting and complicated ending to a, a very interesting and well done movie. I guess maybe in, in talking this out in this stream of consciousness rambling of mine, I, I realized my big problem was the movie. I didn't know what it was trying to say. And, and, and there again, I think I've just talked myself into the, the notion that it really is not trying to tell you anything. I mean, there are little things here and there that don't judge a book by its cover sort of thing, but it really is just laying this all out there for you to decide for yourself what to make of all of this. And I can appreciate that. You know, sometimes things happen in life and you don't get an explanation for it. There's no message to be gleaned from it. It just is. And you have to, to pick up the pieces and decide for yourself uh, how you feel about all these different things. And and I think, like I said, this movie, if anything, it's not giving you the answers, but it's starting the conversation for you to figure it out for yourself. Uh, which that, to me, on a psychological level, on a intellectual level, uh, I like that. I like movies that that try to get me thinking and try to get me talking and try to get conversations going between people. I can appreciate that. And I think that's what I appreciate about uh, the love that was put into this by the writer and director, Ted Gagan. I think, I think he really enjoyed making this movie and the interviews I've seen with him, he did enjoy making this movie and the process and, and the fact that this was like a, a chamber play, a chamber drama where he had to, you know, you essentially had to go by the script because you can't take out a chunk of the movie where people aren't in the right places. And and listening to him talk about the choreography of, you know, getting people from point A to point B to point C to point D and uh, in this dance uh, of, of these people moving about this room, having to go from one area uh, for this portion of it, but make sure that they're in this area for the next portion of it. Uh, it was very interesting. And you could tell he had a, a blast uh, with all the logistics of, of doing this and, and filming it. I mean, this was a movie they had to film from start to finish. It wasn't a thing where they did the 
final scene on day two. Uh, they did the first scene on day three. They did some of the middle stuff in day one. It, it was it was filmed from act one, act two, act three in essentially succession. And I think that was really a, a great thing for these actors to be able to stay in the same headspace that they're supposed to be in and, you know, uh, moving through this story naturally. And okay, on this day, uh, I have to pick up right where I left off from from yesterday's filming and you don't have to find yourself in a different headspace for for different scenes on different days and like I said uh, from a visual standpoint the art department creating this room creating the space for them to to move around and like I said every section of the room felt like its own own separate space was was really interesting and made for something visually stimulating to look at as the movements of these characters and the dialogue are being said. They did some really cool things. It's set in 1945, so at the very beginning of the movie, it's black and white, and it's got the 4-3 the aspect ratio. With, it's kind of like the box, like the old television sets. And uh, I, I like, oh, that, that's kind of cool. It very, very much fits something from the 40s. And then once they get into this room that they're in, this parlor that they're in, things go to color. And then you see this aspect ratio widen out to a traditional widescreen. And then at the very end of the movie, it's the aspect ratio goes back down to 4.3, goes back to black and white. And, and then you get the cool credits. The credits were very much a traditional style of credit that glass plate and credits that you would get in the very scripty fonts that you would get at the end of those movies and great movies from the 30s and the 40s which i thought was uh, visually very pleasing uh given the the time that this movie is taking place in and uh you know it just kind of felt to me like a great homage and a great love for those those classic horror movies uh, or classic movies in general but but i know ted gagan's a, a big horror fan and a, a big genre filmmaker so i'm sure there was a you know a love of of some of those old 30s horror films and 40s horror films that that influenced the uh the want to do a movie like this uh, that, that he could kind of play with some of those those old school filming styles but all in all this i again this is one of those things where i kind of talked myself into liking this movie more than i than i thought i did uh because like i said from a from an acting standpoint it was fantastic all the actors did a fantastic job visually very stunning very interesting to look at the colors and all the things in the room the art department and the cinematography at all was was very good the script and the story i thought were were really good and really solid and it made for a very interesting film thematically uh, like i said there's there's themes there but there again it doesn't really tell you what to think about these themes it just tells you what you need to know about these characters and their place in these themes and kind of let you draw your own conclusions, I believe, which is interesting. And it's a very dark movie and it has a very dark ending, which I'm always down for. So, uh, yeah, I think when it's all said and done, I liked Brooklyn 45 a lot more than I thought I did going into recording this podcast episode. So I encourage you to check it out for yourself. It's not going to be everybody's cup of tea. Like I said, this is a chamber play. It's going to feel very claustrophobic to a degree. I think they do 
a very good job and and go through great pains to not make it feel claustrophobic but it is all going on in one room it's it's a movie that goes in real time the hour and a half it takes to watch this is an hour and a half of these people's lives and the events all take place within that hour and a half which i think is interesting in and of itself but i think it's so well acted and so interesting to look at and the story's quite interesting and like i said there's a lot to make you think and a lot to make you you know, have discussions with with people that you're watching this with. That I I think this is a really good movie. They think you should take a chance and watch it. If you have been on the fence about it, if you have watched it, hopefully you like it as much as I did. If you haven't watched it yet, uh, and you've come to this point in the game, <laughs> I've probably spoiled a shit ton of stuff for you. But hey, you know what? You're the one that stuck around. So uh, go watch it and see if I was right. Maybe I'm wrong about my thoughts on this movie, but uh, but give it a shot. I think it's definitely worth uh, taking the hour and a half to watch uh, Brooklyn 45. So I want to thank everyone for checking out my thoughts on Brooklyn 45. You can find out more about what's going on with Odds Bodkin's Curiosity Shop on our Facebook page as well as Instagram. Of course, on Facebook, always posting trailers uh, and articles I find all over the internet about horror, fantasy, and science fiction and uh, all sorts of other things you try to find uh, here and there. You can check out that on Instagram as well. And no matter where you listen to this podcast, please follow it, subscribe to it, like it, whatever you do, whatever you have to do, whatever your particular podcast platform calls it, uh, be sure to stay on top of uh, new episodes by by liking, following, subscribing, and share the podcast with anyone that you know that loves horror, fantasy, and science fiction. And as always, please leave those reviews. Uh, those help immensely to get the word out about our podcast, and, and we do appreciate that. No matter what your review, you leave five stars would be great but we always appreciate any feedback so until next time thank you for visiting odds bodkins curiosity shop we hope that you found something to your liking and visit the shop again soon but even though you may come back you never really get to leave odds bodkins curiosity shop ha 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 ha